Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. That is, I am the redneck, and you bet I've gone green and red as well. And it is my distinct pleasure to be welcoming onto this program Jerome Scott. We're going to be talking about non-reformist reforms, and Jerome Scott may be uniquely qualified to have this conversation. You see, Jerome Scott is a member of the League of Revolutionaries for a New America. Uh, his background, like I still remember him telling me about how he was in Vietnam, uh, sitting in those jungles and thought, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, that thus began his consciousness, came uh, back to the United States, uh, got involved in the United Auto Workers, uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, uh, then went on to found Project South. Uh, he has been instrumental in the U.S. Social Forum. And I'm also going to say a personal friend, mentor, and comrade, Jerome Scott. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. Hey, man, it's good to be here. Well, it's I good. love the name. I, I thought you'd like it, right? Uh, yeah, I, I love that name. You know, <laughs> I, I work with some other folks that got part of that name called uh, Rednecks for Black Lives. Well, there you go, right? I, I got to tell you, Jerome Scott and listeners of uh, this podcast and viewers who are watching us on YouTube, I'm here to reclaim Redneck. I've about yeah. had it up to here uh, with these racist, horrible, class-oppressive assholes who are taking the name Redneck and turning it into something that it ain't. On another program, we're going to go deep on the, the coal miner strike and the Scottish right. heritage fighting against the enclosure movement. Redneck has a very proud tradition, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things, Jerome, that, that you and I often talk about when we talk in, you know, one-on-one -on -one is the need to actually talk, real talk, about the need for a revolution, restructuring mm -hmm. society, new social institutions, new political institutions, new economic institutions. Uh, and doing it in a way that doesn't sound off-putting to ordinary folk, right? Right. And so you've had uh, a lot of history at that. So I'm going to ask you to just uh, take us through Jerome Scott's consciousness. Like, what, 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 like tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into this uh, topic of non-reformist reforms. How did you become a revolutionary? Well, um, this is not a long program, so I'll give you the short version. As you said in the introduction, I found myself in Vietnam and um, and realized that I didn't know why I was there. I mean, I knew I'd been sent there by the military, but I didn't know why the war was going on and, and what we were fighting for. And And I thought to myself, why is it that you're someplace that you could be killed at any moment, but yet you don't have the rationale for why you're fighting here. And I promised myself back then that I would never be in another place where I didn't, where I couldn't explain why I was there. You know, and that set me on this road to figuring out, you know, what was going on in the world? Why is war one of the things that keep reoccurring over and over again, and what was the purpose of it? And I, just trying to answer those questions led me uh, to an understanding that if you really, really wanted uh, to be clear 
on how this world works, you had to be a scientist. You had to study, you know. And so I ended up in a situation with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers back in the 1960s, where we actually decided that we had to study various philosophers, various intellectuals, including Marx and Lenin and Stalin. You know, we had to study all these people, a, a number of the African scholars. You know, we had to look into how they accessed the world. And it was through this assessment of the world and trying to figure out who was most most closely associated with the way we lived and the way we understood the world, we ended up determining that we had to be Marxists, you know, and we had to understand that this world could be different. We have not always had a capitalist uh, organization of society, and we could reorganize society if we could only get the power to do so. And, you know, and that's what set me on this road to becoming a revolutionary because I knew that what we had was not working for the vast majority of the people. It's working very well for a few people. You know, uh, what's happening with capitalism is not a mistake. It's the way it's supposed to function. You know, so it's working very well for a few people, but not very well for the vast majority. You know, I, I, it's funny, Jerome, because when people say, oh, our healthcare system is broken, I always say, no, it's not. It's working exactly as it's designed. It is yep. treating health, access to healthcare as a commodity to be bought exactly. and paid for at a profit. Our educational exactly. system is not broken. Like None of these things are broken. They are operating as designed. And Jerome, I want to push you to, to explain to our listeners and our viewers, when you say you're a revolutionary, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that I understand, I, through study, and I'm, and I'm emphasizing study because I think it's really important for people uh, to develop themselves intellectually. I think the revolution is at least 80% intellectual and only 20%, you know, the work that we have to do because we have to get on the right path. So when I, when I say revolutionary, what I mean is that I understand that the capitalist system is not a system you know, it's like, well, I remember one discussion I had with you, and this stuck with me for the, for the rest of my time. And you was telling me about the Constitution. And you said, you know, man, the, the Constitution is a private property document. It protects private property. It has nothing to do with human rights. And that really stuck with me because that's the, that's the law of the land. And as, a, as what I mean by a revolutionary, I mean, we have to overthrow this document, this constitution that says private property is the sacrament of everything to a document that says no, human rights and human, uh, uh, human's ability to live and thrive is the, is the thing that should be driving this nation. So when I say I'm a revolutionary, I'm, I, I see that in order for humanity to continue to thrive, we must overthrow capitalism. We must end the system of capitalism and create a, a, a system which is really a system of socialism that is based on human need. You know, we get from people what they're capable of giving, and we give the people the ability for them to thrive. And, and, and we work 
you know, we have to build a system that really does eliminate white supremacy and really does um, look at the values of having work that people not only uh, know how to do, but people strive to do, that they want to do. We can organize society that we can work for a certain number of hours, take the whole notion of profit out of the picture, meaning today we work, corporations work for profit and they work for maximizing profit. That dictates everything else. That dictates how we live, how we function, whether or not we can actually thrive in this society. So when I say I'm a revolutionary, I want to get rid of all that. But what I'm fighting for is a society where people are equal, that the law is on the side of the human condition, and that corp you know, we, we probably don't, we don't need corporations as we have them today. You know, we need organization of society that is run by the people, really. You know, we say that this organization of society is for and by the people, but that's the last time we hear anything about the people. After that, it's the corporations and the ruling class that really dictates the way the society works. You so know, you mentioned you mentioned that uh, you also studied African philosophers and revolutionaries. And uh, remember, you turned me on to Amical Cabral. Uh, oh, and I yeah. love this line. Quote, always remember that the people are not fighting for ideas, not for things that are in their head. The people fight and accept the sacrifices demanded by the struggle in order to gain material advantages, to live right. better and in peace, to benefit from Congress, progress, and for the better future for their children. Uh, and I, uh, I, that's always stuck with me, Jerome, is when mm -hmm. I talk to you, you break it down without dumbing it down, right? And so if we're talking about the need to restructure society, that brings us into the, why do you fight for reforms? And what is the, what is a non-reformist reform? Mm -hmm. Because I've, like, I've been with you now, like for 25, 30 years, right? And I see you constantly in the fight the struggle for reforms to make people's lives better. Talk about as a revolutionary, why and how you do that. Well, first of all, let's look at the situation we're in today. You know, right now today, um, we're in a situation where the demands of the people, say for good education, for really the kind of education that, is not the education that they give you to try to find some minimal job, but to fight for education that will prepare you for, for the future of this world. An education that prepares you to contribute to the development of society. In this world today, the way we're functioning, we hardly get a, the type of education that will get us a decent job in regular education. You know, so, and you can look at that for every institution of capitalism. You know, you, you started talking about, you know, how the institutions are working the way they were designed, and they are, but they're failing the people. You know, I, I challenge you to give me one institution that's working a way that would service the people. Our education system, they're trying to teach that slavery had some benefits. 
that that's an integral part to the state of Florida's proposed education program on black history. You know, so the Education uh, Institute is really in disarray. Healthcare in disarray. You, if you don't have insurance, you can be turned down for healthcare at most hospitals. You know, every institution. So to, just think about that and then think about our demands, our reforms. The first thing I think we have to do is make sure we demand what we need. You know, don't demand something because you think we can get it and it's not what we need. Let's demand what we need. We need an education system that is accessible from, from kindergarten to advanced education, accessible and free. You know, that's what, that's what this society needs. Let's demand that. And not just for some, that should be for everybody. That would be a reform that the ruling circles would resist at every turn. And it's really not all that complicated. It's not like we're demanding something that can't be realized. It could be realized. We have the resources to do it. But in demanding and fighting for that reform, you place, we place the ruling class in a position where what seems to be a very logical thing, they claim to be unable to do. You know, and we could do that with healthcare. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not that difficult. We just demand that people who need healthcare can access it whether they're in rural America, whether they're in the middle of the ghettos of the cities, wherever you might be, we can we have the resources to have access to healthcare. Instead, we got hospitals closing, particularly in rural areas. So let's demand a, the stopping of closures of hospitals, the, stop, the opening up of more uh, uh, medical institutions and communities, particularly rural communities and inner city communities that need them. Let's demand that. That's a simple demand. But that's a demand that the ruling class will fight tooth and nail. As a matter of fact, you know, if you think about it, they're trying to, they're taking back the reforms that we've already fought for and so-called achieved. Voting rights, women's rights to medical care of their choice, you know, all of the reforms that we fought for in the 60s and the 70s are now either under attack, under attack or have been rolled back. You know, and so, you know, we, we can't just rely on reforms. And here's the key to this question, I think, of how do you fight for reforms without becoming a reformist? A reformist thinks that if we get you know, say, for instance, we get the right to vote like we got. A reformist thinks that that's going to solve the problem, that that problem is solved. Well, look at it now. They're taking that right back. They're limiting our access to voting to the extent where literally in Georgia just last week, 200,000 people were kicked off the voting rolls, you know, for some little technicality. So that reform is under attack when we thought it was 
gotten. So the trick to this is, you know, it's a lot like, uh, you know, you got these, you got an understanding that we have to fight for these immediate needs of the people. But you got to connect that up with your long-term goals. You got to you got to have that connected to how are we going to not only get that reform but secure it. Now we we can we've proven over the years that we can fight hard and get reforms. What we are seeing today is that we can't hold on to them because capitalism. The moment you enact the reform, that reform is under attack immediately, and it might take fifty years. Like it did, you know, with the abortion deal. It might take 50 years to roll it back, but they're constantly trying to roll it back. So the way you fight for reforms without becoming a reformist is that you fight for this reform in connection with the revolutionary process of getting rid of capitalism and setting it up on a new basis so we can protect that reform and expand it not attack it and contract it. You know, uh, I'll say Catherine, who I know uh, lives in rural Texas, actually wrote in uh, a comment uh, at 312. While I agree with all you're saying, I also think that the number of people on this planet, there must be a way to furnish everyone with their needs. Sounds almost impossible. And then five minutes later, she writes, yes, with an exclamation point, right? So you you (laughs) convince Catherine, at least in rural Texas. So Jerome, I'm going to point out that uh, you know, one of the things that you and I work on is democratizing the economy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there are ways to to move towards whether you, and again, whether you call it economic democracy or socialism, the the word doesn't matter. What matters is is our economic system meeting human needs in balance uh, with the natural world, right? And right. so the way that we can fight for non-reformist reforms in that context are things like worker-owned cooperatives and Mm -hmm. public banking and participatory budgeting and universal basic income. I want to be clear, every one of those are reforms within the capitalist system, but they're also designed to win tangible, concrete, material benefits for people and undermine the logic of capitalism. Because at some point, we are going to have to come to terms with We cannot have an ecologically sustainable, racial or economically just society under capitalism. It's not Mm -hmm. reformable, right? Right. We can't just jump from what the world we're living in now to revolution. It's a process and we've got to help bring people into it, right? Right, right. And so, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. Go ahead. I I just, I I was going to underscore again, the reason that you have inspired me to study. Like I remember when we first met and I proclaimed myself a revolutionary and you, you, I don't know if you even remember this, right. Uh, but we were at the, 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 uh, Midwest social forum that, that, uh, that the Haven center pulled on and you said, yeah, uh, I heard you say you were revolutionary. So I'm always curious when I hear somebody say that, what do you mean by that? That was, that was 25 years ago, maybe more. right? Right. And, what I remember was in the conversation, you just asked some very pointed questions, right? You 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 just talked to me, but you asked some very provocative questions that got me thinking. And then you said, well, here's some stuff that you might want to read, right? And mm-hmm. the next thing I know, 
Like I didn't even realize it, but you got me in a study group basically. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then the more I studied, the more I realized, oh, yeah. the bourgeois democratic society and state is not enough. Like, because it, it seeds the ability to make the fundamental decisions. And it's not enough to just extract concessions, no matter how big those concessions are. At the end of the day, we have to restructure who owns the means of production. We've got to have clarity on our ability to, to meet our basic needs and actually be empowered. Like, that's what democracy would really mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things I wanted to uh, go back to that you said a little earlier, and that is this whole question of uh, cooperatives. You know, we've had, you know, like worker-owned co cooperatives and 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 uh, community-owned bank cooperatives. We've had a cooperative movement in this country for a really long time. You know, and and these reforms are very critical. And and you can you can get these things. You can get community-controlled banks under capitalism. And you can get worker-owned cooperatives. The thing that, that makes them uh, non-reformist reformists is if they're connected with your longer-term goals. You know, that we're creating this worker-owned, not to look at it as where we're ending up, but to use it as a tactic moving toward our strategy of really setting up a new society that this we're, we're doing this to model this we're not doing this to stay here we don't want to stay just at this worker cooperative we want to use this worker cooperative to convince the people of the cooperatives and to have them go out and convince their friends that we could have more of these things and more secure cooperatives if we could move this society more toward a really cooperative-based society, you know, where competition is not the, the thing that moves society forward, but cooperation is the thing that moves society forward. So, so I really want to support that notion, but, I, but I, don't, I don't want people to think that all they got to do is do that. You know, they got to do that in connection with a bigger picture. Absolutely. I really appreciate that, Jerome, because again, we, we have to fight for the things that we actually want and need to make people's lives better. And at the end of the day, like what I know is this, the ecological uh, crisis uh, is, is not coming. It's here and getting worse. Uh, right. We are no longer in, in, we're not in late stage capitalism. This is actually end stage capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what pisses me off is it's end stage because of the way capitalism works to extract the surplus value of the labor of the worker, right? That's literally, exactly. and like, like, like you ask any capitalist and they understand full well that like they only, they only hire somebody because they make money off of hiring them, right? It's, exactly. it's, it's like any, any uh, economics class, uh, any business class 101 will do that. But the point is this with automation, robotics, technology, and now artificial intelligence, Right. This political economy is being restructured. The question right. is, what is it going to look like? Right. Hey, Rabbit, and, that and that restructuring is actually undermining capitalism, just like you said. I mean, this whole, every, you know, the capitalists know that the only way new value is created is by workers. They know that. 
but at the same time, they their their drive toward maximum profit demands that they institute higher levels of technology whenever they come on the scene. And every time they introduce another level of technology, they end up laying off a whole bunch of workers. You know, which means that they're not they have to fight harder to try to maximize their profit because they're not creating new value. They're trying to take value from other capitalists, you know. And so, yeah, it undermines that whole basic relationship of capitalism. And I'm telling you, <clears throat> when they were talking about AI and they said that AI was a threat to humanity, the way I thought, the way I thought about that comment was, oh no, it's a threat to the capitalist system. And they think that if the capitalist system is not here, then that's a threat to humanity. The question is, who has the power to actually implement this artificial intelligence in a way that aids humanity and not make profit for the corporations? That's the trick. And we can't do that under capitalism. Jerome, hey, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. My name is Jack Rabbit. I'm the... Um on the pirate ship here of uh, redneck on green. And, um, you know, I wanted to just kind of like check in with you about something that you said a second ago about the, like what kind of, uh, the definition of the uh, non-reformist reform. And you, and I really appreciated this is that you said that it was, um, a, a, you know, kind of what could be considered to be reform, but in, uh, with like, like presented in favor or, or in uh, service to long-term goals. Right. Right. And, um, you know, I really I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I think that's a very, uh, a very thoughtful and, and meaningful kind of definition. But, you know, what I want to kind of put to you and I'd love to hear your your response to this is when I hear that I go directly to AOC and I mm -hmm. think of AOC being elected and, and being so like so many of us. I, and I have to admit, I was one of them. You know, I know, I'm sure David, he already knew, but I didn't. You know, I wanted to believe, I was very excited. And, you know, and, and you see the corrupting influence of the existing institutions that she, mm -hmm. as soon as she became a part of that. Now, of course, obviously, we have no idea what was going on inside her head at the time. Um, but I will tell you, you know, I saw her very early on, maybe even before she got elected, but I think it was probably after. And she attended a, it was a discussion about municipalism in, you know, in Spain, which is like, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's like a, lo a very localized mm -hmm. uh, organizing around electoral politics. It was extremely successful and she was there and she was talking about all this highfalutin kind of like rhetoric. Now, I think that we, I think it's hard for anyone who's paying attention not to see her as baby Pelosi. And so- <laughs> All that is to ask you, Jerome, right? Like, how how do we get there from here? You know, how do we? Because it's oh, a great it's yeah. a great idea to have those reforms, and even and I would argue having the long term that we can all agree on is is questionable. But even even with those reforms, how do we get to what you're talking about? What what steps? What practical steps can be taken with such a corrupt system? Look, um, there are all. David said it, this society, this economic economy today is in really bad shape. I mean, they tell us that we, we got the, the lowest unemployment that we've had in 50, 60 years. 
they say. But what they don't tell us is that only about 60% of people who could be working is actively trying to work, you know, is actively participating in the electoral, I mean, in the uh, job market. Only about 60%. So that means that you got 40% of the, of the working people who have decided, who have been looking for a job, can't find a living wage, you know, they're just decided that they have to drop out of that system and try to make a living in some other way. You know, so the economy is really in bad shape today. And how do we get from here to there? We have to organize. You know, we don't, we have to make sure that we speak to people on everyday people, your neighbors, your coworkers. You know, we have to talk to them about what's going on in their lives. How are they doing economically? If we got together as a community of people, could we demand more and get more from our elected officials? Can we make them do what they promised us that they were going to do when we went out and voted for them? You know, can we can we have the fights in our employer, you know, with our employer about our contract negotiations? If we organize the workers at that shop or at that plant or at that warehouse, you know, and instill upon them the need that organization can de can determine the future of how we how we live and whether or not we can get the things that we need to thrive. I mean, my point here is that first we have to organize. That's the first way we get there. The second, we have to educate ourselves. You know, it's one thing to say. We want higher wages and fight and organize to get those higher wages. There's another thing to say, what is the wage system? Can it ever be fair? You know, am I ever going to get a fair day's work for, you know, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work? You know, and when you begin to study the wage system, you realize that they have stolen the value that we created way before you even get to the wage system. So if you understand that the wage system is already rigged against you, then not only do you fight for higher wages, you fight to get rid of that wage system and to move on to where we actually receive the value that we create in the workplace. So it's organize and educate, and then you organize and educate, and then you want to have a vision of the future. What is it that we're fighting for? And, you know, we're fighting for a society where no one can get sick and not get the kind of health care that they need, that no one can be hungry or homeless. I mean, it's incredible, the homelessness and the way it's growing throughout this country right now when the economy is supposed to be so good. If this economy is so good, how can we have a growing number of homeless people living on our streets and under bridges? You know, and we would be talking about a, a situation where not only do we organize for housing at a reasonable and accessible price, but we also organize why it should never, ever be homelessness in our society. So the way we get there is we organize, we educate, and we get a critical mass of people to embrace this vision of a new society that we can fight for, 
we can we can begin to practice it in our cooperative formations that we have, but ultimately we know that we got to create this new vision in order to not only fight for reforms, but actually get them and hold them. That's the way we get there. And so thank you, thank you, uh, Jerome, for the answer and Jack for, for the question. And I'm going to I'm going to get really concrete and specific because you talked about AOC uh, and reforms. And I'm going to use the Green New Deal uh, as an example right mm -hmm. now. Uh, actually, there are three different broadly three different Green New Deals. You ready? So the first one is what I'm going to call the real Green New Deal. It's the one that the Green Party originated. Uh, Jill Stein in 2012, uh, when she ran for president the first time, actually articulated it. And that Green New Deal had three component parts. The first was to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels within a 15-year period, right? So it had to do with uh, pollution and uh, global warming and fossil fuels. That was point one. But to point two was to completely dismantle the entire U.S. military industrial complex, not only because uh, that is the largest polluter, but also because it is an instrument of global imperialism and capitalism and all of the things that Jerome Scott just described. And the third part was to replace unemployment centers with employment centers, tens of thousands of them across the country where local communities will have through a participatory process gone through with this say, this is what we need in our community. Library, schools, hospitals, uh, uh, mitigation for the uh, sea level rise, et cetera, et cetera, right? So mm -hmm. it was to democratize from the bottom up the economy, right? So that's the real Green New Deal. And you see, it's still a reform, but it is profound and transformational. It is mm -hmm. actually addressing capitalism and it's addressing white supremacy. It's addressing a whole system in place. So right. AOC comes in and waters it down and takes out the critique and the call to dismantle the military industrial complex, takes out the entire restructuring of the economic system. Now, to be clear, what AOC and Bernie Sanders, to their credit, mm -hmm. it's real good on fossil fuels, right? What they introduced. Of course, the right wing went apoplectic uh, on that. So better to have actually been for what we were for to begin with, right? So that's the second Green New Deal. You see how that's a, a, a right. down reform versus a non-reformist reform? And of course, right. the third Green New Deal is what Pelosi and Schumer put forth. And I like to say that Green New Deal is neither green nor new <laughs> nor a deal, right? <laughs> it's just a greenwashing problem. But the point I'm making right. to yeah. It's about the vision of what we're demanding and 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 the concreteness of these are winnable right now. Right. That's, I think what makes a non a reform non-reformist. See the the thing that's so important, David, about what you just said is that that first plan was actually what we needed. You know, that's what society needs. You know, we we do need to deal with the climate crisis. That's for damn sure. And we're not going to deal with it unless we stop completely using fossil fuel. Completely. You know, 
And we do need employment centers. And we don't need the fucking military the way it is. I mean, the, and all that money that we spend on the military, we can use that to finance the employment centers. You know, and so the, what that is saying to me is, is what we said in the very first thing. The first thing about non-reformist reforms is that we demand what we really will solve the problems that we're faced. We, we don't think about, well, this is the solution, but we never get that. So let's not propose that. Let's propose some little something that might lean in that direction, and maybe we'll get that, and then we'll think about what we really need later. You know, we got to stop that thinking. It's not, I, don't, I think this whole process of thinking of, well, what's possible? You know, just think about the history of this country. If we went on what was possible, I would still be in slavery, you know, because slavery was impossible to stop at, at the various critical moments of this society. As a matter of fact, slavery was expanding, you know, until the Civil War, you know, but, but I'm just saying that if we, if the abolitionists would have said, no, we don't, we don't want to end slavery, we just want to sort of make a it A slavery better. protection act. Right, a slavery protection act. We'll make it a little better for people. You know, so we got to stop thinking about, oh, maybe we can get this and that will move us. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I really love about what you're saying, what both you guys are saying is, is like, you know, I just don't think that there's a goal. I, I don't think that we currently have a vision for that fu those future goals that you're talking about. You know, I mean, it's like the stuff that you were talking about sounded great, but I don't, I'm, I'm unaware of any kind of like unified or even approaching unified, any kind of like collective, like there was, there was like this fiction. I feel like when I was growing up as a leftist, that there was some kind of like, well, we, of course we all were leftists. So we all agree on these certain goals, right? Like whatever mm -hmm. kind of, whatever they may have been, I feel like they were, they were always kind of vague. Right. And as, as I got older, like over the past few decades, you know, there's just been, you know, the issues have all become more and more fractured, more and more atomized. They're always like, you know, how can this particular sector get a little bit more rights? How can that little sector get a little bit more rights? And those are like, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm this hundred percent not trying to mm -hmm. complain about like, for example, I just want to give a, for example, like the right for, um, you know, homosexual people to marry. Congratulations. I think it's awesome. Very happy. Like every, they hundred percent. Right. But what was it in service to, right? Like what was the greater goal? Mm -hmm. It was about like people where we were all focused on that particular, that particular outcome. And once that outcome was served, then, then what, right? There was no, then what? And so, so, you know, I, I feel like what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, and my apologies if I wasn't being clear is without those unifying goals that you're describing, right? The reforms, even as, as exciting as, and hopeful they may be, they're not, they're, they're just regular reforms. They're not non-reformist reforms as you were talking about, right? It's the goals in the future. To, it's a take, mm -hmm. understanding them as steps to a better world. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see anyone, um, you know, right now it feels like we're in triage, 
right? It feels mm-hmm. like we're in trouble. Like people are just like, how can we stop the bleeding? This is this whole like you know national politics. What's national politics about? It's about I'm not the wor- I'm not the other guy. You know, if you're mm-hmm. on if you're on the right, the right is saying, well, at least you know, hey, look how woke that other person is. That's not me. Vote for me. The pe- person on the left is saying, I'm not Trump. Vote for me. You know, it's all it's, nobody has a broader vision. You know, mm-hmm. and I, that and that goes for the left as well. So as much as I I love the things that you're talking about, Jerome and and David as well, it's like where 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 is that big vision? Where is that unifying rallying point for people? Cause I don't see it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, I think we might be talking to different people, you know, because when I talk to, to people in my community or people that I in, see, find myself at meetings with, like I was just at a meeting in New York last week, of a coalition called the Rising Majority. And it's a it's a coalition of about 90 organizations led by people of color. And and that whole we had a four-day meeting. That whole four-day meeting, what we were talking about was this vision of the future. You know, of of how we let me approach this a little differently. When I talk to people about education, and I say that education should be accessible and free for everybody in this country from kindergarten to advanced studies, when I say to people that that don't make sense that uh, healthcare is is determined by profit, you know that if if they can't make a profit on your healthcare, you don't get it. When I talk to people about that, and I say, no, healthcare should be acceptable there. I don't know anybody that disagrees with me. You know, people just, people say to me, that's a vision of the future that I would like to see. You know, and, and I could go on and on and on. When I say to people that workers should not, should be able to contribute to how their workplace is organized and run, you know, so that workers are, are have better health and safety conditions, you know, so that the workplace is not a dangerous place to go to every day. I can't, I can't find anybody that disagrees with that. The problem is that the ideological and propaganda machine of this country, when you say like socialism will grant all, will, will organize a society in such a way that all these things are present and that society is a socialist society, People forget that they agreed with all the demands that led up to that society and say, wait a minute, that that concept is not a clear concept to me. That's what happens. I See, I think that people do have the vision of the future. We got to let them realize that when we say we're going to reorganize the society so that you, those goals can be met, that that's a good thing, not some you know, thing that they talk about people eating their babies or something. You know, this is a society organized in such a way to meet human needs. And a society that takes profit out of the picture and removes corporations from making all the goddamn decisions. You know, and when I present that vision, when I say that's what, I get people telling me all the time, man, yeah, that's that's the kind of society I want to live in. That's the kind of society I want my grandkids to live in. So I don't know. I mean, I think that 
you're right on the one hand that if we come with these concepts without backing them up with what we're talking about concretely and materially, then yes, we're going to get resistance. But when you show people the material advantages that humanity has on this different organization of society, you get an amen. And I'll tell you, you know, I am reminded Nelson Mandela famously said, uh, everything important seems impossible until it is done. And, right. you know, you, you mentioned slavery. I mean, like, remember, uh, you know, Catherine uh, and you, uh, one of our guests, our, our, our listeners, viewers, who's uh, made a few comments. Uh, so thank you for that, Catherine. But, you know, Catherine, uh, there was a time, I'm going to assume uh, your gender based on your name, there was a time when women not only could not vote, but women were chattel property. Their entire right. legal relationship was a function right. of the men of their lives, first their fathers and then their husbands, period, full stop. I mean, like, we can go down the list of things that seemed impossible at the time, but ordinary people educated, agitated, and then made and implemented plans uh, to, to make those kind of changes. And I think that's the thing, Jack. I totally appreciate the point you're making and agree with your own. On the one hand, but then there's on the other hand. Because whenever I talk to people about, look, as, as the Spice Girls would say, what do you want? What do you really, really want? Like, right. it's not longer, like, it's not bigger cages, longer chains. That's not what people really, really want. What people really want is meaningful, productive work for which they will be acknowledged and appreciated. See, that's the other thing. The right wing and these capitalist pigs, they lie and they say people are lazy and don't want to work. Bullshit. People want to work. If by work, you mean meaningful, productive human activity uh, that makes yourself better and other people better. People line up right. with that. Look, anytime there is a crisis, people don't get, like they just go out and help each other. That's the human condition. That's our birthright. We're supposed to be doing that. That's why we feel better when we do it together collectively. And I could go down the list. The reality is people want to live in balance and harmony. They want meaningful, productive work. They want relationships with each other that make themselves feel good. They want their kids to get along. And if we actually recognize that we have to break that down without dumbing it down, we just have to speak plainly to folk about the world that we want, that they see that they want it too, what's going to end up happening is clarity on class. And I don't mean socioeconomic class, I right. mean classification of who owns what. Because the reality is that there is a owning class and a laboring or working class. That's what I mean when I talk about class. And I often say, man, I've got, well, I used to say I've got one enemy and that is my class enemy. But nowadays, mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna be honest, I've actually recognized, oh man, I've got members of my own class that are turning mm -hmm. into my enemy oh, yeah. because oh, they yeah. are siding with the fascists. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My job, Definitely. my job here at Redneck Gone Green is to convince everyone that our interests are united. We have to unite the, the, the laboring working class together against the predatory class that are dividing us. That's my right. job. Right. 
And you know, you just mentioned something that I that we hadn't talked about that I think we should spend a minute on. And that is this march toward fascism in this country. First of all, I think it's important that we recognize that fascism, the institution of fascism is a political institution. It's, it's, it's still part of the capitalist society. As a matter of fact, the only reason they're thinking about changing the political structure is because they're afraid that more and more people are becoming conscious that we need to change this system. That's, that's the problem that they're faced. They, they're looking down the road and saying, damn, we know how this society is going to go because we're driving it in that direction. And we're seeing more and more people become conscious that we can no longer live nor thrive within capitalism. And so they're, they're saying that in order for us to control this system, we have got to move toward a more dictatorial organization of our politics. You know, the, you know, we live under a bourgeois democracy, so-called democracy right now. What the drive toward fascism is to say, no, you don't have those rights. You don't have no democratic rights. You know, all your rights is determined by whether or not you support capitalism as a system and you're willing to fight for capitalism as a system. If you do that, then you got rights. If you don't, then you don't. You know, and so if you think about that, why are they going toward fascism when bourgeois democracy has worked for so long? Because they're afraid that the mounting understanding of what's happening in this world is getting to the point where people are recognizing that capitalism as a system is our number one enemy. And 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 so they're they're trying to protect it. And so we gotta, you know, we got to move to make sure that fascism is not consolidated in this country as as a part of the process of of moving toward overthrowing capitalism, we got to go through this motion toward fascism. You know, the way I look at it is uh, fascism is rising because as Jerome says, it's a political economic system. Fascism is not just jackbooted thugs or totalitarians, although that's that that is how they enforce it. But it is a world order that 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 articulates there is us and them and the us needs to be protected from the them and in it's always nationalist and that's why in this country with white supremacy it's always white nationalist but remember in africa there are black-skinned fascists in india right. there are brown-skinned fascists because it's national, right. right uh so the uh the the point that i'm making here is fascism is a hyper-nationalistic us versus them way to organize society. Why did it ar arise in the 1930s? Why is it arising now as, as like viable uh, ideas? Because in the 1930s, the entire political economy was basically in flux and in turmoil being restructured from an agrarian one to what we now know as an industrial one. Mm -hmm. We have the advantage of looking back and knowing that. But at the time, all we knew is Oh my God, oh my God, like what is happening? And the fascists say, we got you. To the, to, the, to the white working class, they say, you're right, you're under attack, you're threatened, we've got a plan for you, right? And now today, the same Wait a thing minute. Is a, Go ahead. In addition to that, in, in addition to that, I totally agree with you, David, 
But in addition to that, you had Germany moving toward socialism. There was a big socialist movement in Germany. You know, you had the Soviet Union back then pushing and, and giving people a model of how they can move the society forward. So yes, all those things, plus they were afraid that socialism might also move into Germany and Italy and all the other fascist regimes that came about. So that's then, right? And today, because you see automation, robotics, technology, artificial intelligence, and people understand and they see the ecological collapse, they see economic uncertainty, and they see the politics. So fascism is emerging as a solution politically to that problem. And I genuinely and sincerely believe I'm not creating the polarization, but I am describing it. I honestly think that in this moment, we are at a which side are you on moment. And people are either going to have to choose. I'm on the side of love and compassion and cooperation, the vision that Jerome and Jack and Catherine and myself have been describing, or I'm going to fall fall in line with the fascist ideology. Like, And my job, again, is to convince them, no, no, we can have the world that you actually want. What you really, really mm-hmm. want, we can win that world. And people right. have done it before. That's the, And I'm going to conclude with this, um, that throughout all of, of human history, uh, 90% of the time, humans were literally living in cooperative societies. That's our birthright. Mm-hmm. Right. Over right. 95% of the time, human beings were right. on this planet. We actually operated uh, in a communalist way, right? Uh, and food wasn't, like, food was shared freely amongst the, whoever the we was. This is the thing, y'all. Today, we have the capacity, the technology, and the knowledge. There is enough to go around. Scarcity yeah. is not the issue. The issue is who controls the allegation, allocation of the goods and services that are available. Right. Amen, brothers. Well, with that, remember... I- I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna drop off guys and let you uh let you all wrap up, okay? Thank you, Jack. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jack Rabbit. The other thing about that, David, is that you know, there's there's some misconception about fascism. Some people think fascism is a battle, you know, between people who are not in power and some other people trying to get power. No, this is the ruling the capitalist ruling class trying to figure out how to protect capitalism and how to control the masses of the people who are beginning to be conscious that capitalism is our enemy. And I'm going to, I'm going to actually say this, we'll, we'll uh, uh, circle back uh, for another conversation, Jerome, but the neoliberal Democrats are creating the conditions by which the fascists flourish. Right. Like like they're, they are not our, our friends. They are right. not going to, act, they do not share our vision. Now, they'd prefer to do it with a velvet glove, but make no, mm-hmm. make no mistake, it is an iron fist with which they right. do it. Exactly. Exactly. So, yep. Joel, Scott, this has been a phenomenal conversation. We've, we're already at our hour. Uh, I want to thank you very much. I'm going to give you some, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up. Yeah, I just want to say that 
it seems like a daunting task, but but I, I think it's important for people to realize that if we get organized and we get and we educate ourselves and we develop a collective vision of the world that we're fighting for, this is a task that we can do. You know, capitalism capitalism is in its final, final stages, but it ain't gonna die. You know, it will not die of its own. We have to actually kill it, you know, and we can do it. We have the power on our side to do that. We just haven't collectivized ourselves enough to realize it. But we're moving in that direction and we can be successful. Well, Jerome Scott, I want to thank you so much for coming on Redneck Gone Green. And I want to thank you, the viewer, listener. If you are watching live, thank you very much. Uh, if you're on YouTube, please forward that link. Like, share, subscribe. I know everybody says it, but that's how the algorithm works, right? Like, make no mistake about it. The ruling elite are, the, no, stop myself. I'm going to stop calling them the elite because they're not better than us. The predatory right. class shaking their boots when they see a redneck and a black man have a conversation like what we're having. I swear. <laughs> and, I swear. And, and That's they their nightmare. It. It's a nightmare for them. And then if other people start hearing it and talking about it too, then the next yeah. thing you know, a movement's on your hand. So I'm going to ask you again, like this video, share it, comment on it, we have to break the algorithm because the corporate media has figured out how to say, oh, you've got free speech, except for they don't let us actually get our message out. I'm convinced right. when ordinary people hear conversation in plain language, they with us. Yep. I agree. I agree. I agree more than 100%. All right. And look at here, y'all. Uh, this is the end of Redneck Gone Greed, episode number two, next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific. 4 p.m. Mountain, 5 p.m. Uh, Central, 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll have Margaret Kimberly of the Black Agenda Report. She and I are going to be talking about the Green Eco-Socialist Network and why the Green Eco-Socialist Network has endorsed Cornell West for President of the United States. So join us next week. Thanks for your time. Keep fighting. Peace.